You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit houstonsfirst.org. Amen. Can we show some love for these musicians and the moment they just... Wow. My goodness. Uh, well, howdy. How we doing? That's a, okay, when I say howdy, it's kind of a test to see who's in the room. Like, if, if you know, you know when I say howdy. But, like, anyway, uh, Houston's first family, how we doing? Doing okay? Um, let me just say right off the bat, uh, whether you are online or on campus, we're so excited that you're worshiping uh, with us today. Uh, in a minute, we'll be opening the Bible. I'm excited to do that. If you w- brought a Bible, go ahead and get to John chapter 15. We'll dive into that in a moment. Launch your app, whatever it is that's going to get the scriptures in front of you. Uh, I am one of the first, I'm the first actually, the guest speaker that gets to step into this space for this summer series while Pastor Greg is on sabbatical called My Life Verse. Very excited to share you, uh, share with you the verse that quite literally saved my life. That's what we're going to be covering today. But I don't want to be rude. Let's do a brief introduction. My name is Brian McCormick. Uh, the brief version, I was born in Canada. I was raised in the Woodlands, Woodlands High School. Uh, after high school, school and ministry uh, took me a lot of places. Texas, California, Washington State, Oregon, North Carolina. Uh, but for over a decade, the last, gosh, 13 years, we were in the Seattle area where we planted a church, and uh, it was the joy of our lives to get to be a part of that. But as of March, as of mid-March, we are residents of the great nation of Texas once again. Uh, we, <laughs> we just moved along with our five kids. That's too many kids for names and ages. We don't have time for that. Uh, there's five of them. Uh, we just moved to College Station where I am the new executive director of Breakaway uh, on the campus of Texas A&M University. So there you are, a couple of whoops. I'm not used to quiet passive Aggies. That's a new thing. Um, I don't know where that came from. But uh, what an honor it is to be shepherding the ministry that was born in your lead pastor's apartment living room in 1989. Uh, I can't tell you what an honor it is to be just the fourth exec director of this ministry. If you are not familiar, by all means, breakawayministries.org, and just go see a glimpse of what God does on Tuesday nights in College Station among literally thousands of college students. Uh, My wife and I are betting our everything that God has invited us to be a part of a work in this next generation that is going to shift things in this country. We have audacious belief like that, and we... uh, we just ask that you would pray with us, that God would keep moving in that space. Um, and you are invited any Tuesday night, you wanna make that drive, it ain't that far. Uh, Tuesday nights this fall, uh, 9 p.m., uh, come be a guest, we'd love to have you. Uh, what an honor it is to be here. Um, I, uh, the other community pastor Greg loves is <laughs> this one, obviously. He's given his life to it. Uh, I love your church, I've been impacted by your church. Uh, Back when I was a youth pastor in the Woodlands, my wife and I used to come to Metro while she was uh, helping out with worship one summer. Uh, Tons of respect for Pastor Kylan. Haven't had a chance to meet him yet, but uh, he's had an impact on me from afar. And uh, yeah, before we get started, uh, we already honored the fathers in the room. And I'm glad we did that. Uh, I just wanted to pause for a moment because of where we're going and because of the work I know God wants to do in every heart in this crowded room today. Uh, I just want to talk to a couple people who are not fathers. Uh, I'd like to address and I'd like to just call out and say, we see you, we love you, we bless you. Um, those who desperately want to be fathers, but that hasn't been in the cards yet for whatever reason. Uh, those of you who are perhaps grieving a father, 
today. Uh, Those of you who never had a father around, those of you who had a father around, but it would have been better if he'd not been around, if we're honest. Uh, To everyone who is feeling something other than joy today, uh, we see you. And more importantly, your heavenly father sees you. He loves you. The perfection of your heavenly father completely fills in the gaps or the absence of your earthly father in ways that you cannot even imagine. He wants to meet with you this morning. He already is. He already is. And I just wanted that moment of recognition uh, to hopefully put some of you at ease and for the Holy Spirit to even start ministering to some of you in healing ways that is going to give you open hands to receive the gift that he has for you today. And so wouldn't it be something if Father's Day 2023 was a day that you either discovered or rediscovered the depth, the ferocious love of your heavenly father? That would be something. Uh, So in the spirit of that, I had a father-like moment, a fatherhood moment, if you will, recently that I'd like to share. It would hopefully be helpful, and I know it will be somewhat self-deprecating. So buckle up for that. Uh, When we moved our five children, who are still nameless and ageless because we don't have time for that, uh, when we moved them here and we landed in Texas, the only thing that really mattered to my wife and I was beginning the project of convincing them that there was no better place in the universe they could live and grow up than the great nation of Texas. We needed them to get on board with that as quickly as possible because they just left everything they knew, family, biological family, church family, all that West Coast. And so we roll into town And if you were in my shoes, parents, the right thing to do, the right strategic move to start the process of winning them over is you drive straight to Six Flags over Texas in Arlington, okay? (laughs) Roller coasters. That's how we're going to do this, okay? That's how we're going to do this. So we went to Six Flags. We jumped in doing the rides. Now, Six Flags is known for the roller coasters. However, there's a dynamic that parents have to be very aware of. It has nothing to do with the rides. It's the games, It's the games, okay? If you're ever wondering, how is it only like, you know, $79 for a season pass to Six Flags? Because those games are going to get you. They're going to get you in the wallet is where they're going to get you. And so my kids immediately see like the big, huge stuffed dogs that are hanging next to all the impossible games just designed to exploit you. I'm not bitter. We're going to move on. Um, But one of the games kind of had my name on it. When you are six foot nine inches tall, you immediately get the attention of the Six Flags employee in charge of the basketball game. If you just make a free throw, bro, your kids are going to go home with the dogs that they already have, the stuffed dogs that they have their eyes on already, and they start heckling you on a microphone in public. Now, just so you know, I am a former college athlete with zero competitive outlets in his life. So I can walk by a couple times, but by, I don't know, mid-afternoon, I'm just like, I'm going to take all these people for all the dogs. I'm going to go home with all the dogs. I'm going to win. I'm going to leave with more money than I came with. Somehow, I'm going to take all the dogs. Like, that's what I'm thinking. We get to the end. My kids have been asking me, to, Dad, you play basketball. Win us a dog. That's all we want. The younger three kids. So I go up. It's time for this to happen. One shot, $5. Three shots, $10. So it's the economically wise thing to do to just go for the 10 every time, right? But um, my initial thought is like, sweet, I have three kids, three shots. This is my game. I'll be out of here in 45 seconds looking like a champion. 45 minutes later, a few things had happened. (laughs) A few things had happened in that amount of time. 
I discovered, I already knew that the sound of a heavy brick clanking off of the rim when you shoot it is the sound of failure. The new sound of failure was the swipe of my credit card for the next $10. Um, it got out of hand. I made my first shot immediately to give me a false sense of confidence, and then I spent the next 40 minutes basically gambling away my kid's college fund for two $3 imported stuffed dogs. And uh, I could rant for a while, but the guy starts feeling bad for me. He's like, dude, just take another free shot. Like, he's just watching. He's like, please, dude, make it. I want you to make it. Like, whatever quota he had, I had quadrupled it, like, for the day. Um, don't ask me how much. Not really any of your business. Um, none of your business. But uh, I eventually make it. I get three shots in, three dogs. I get a picture of... Uh, with my three kids and the dogs as big as them in front of them, and that's all we'll remember is the picture 20 years from now. Uh, and so <laughs> it cost me an arm and a leg. It was obviously embarrassing as the people watching are just like, oh, he's not talented, he's just tall, as this whole thing. <laughs> just not true, I swear he used to be a shooter, I swear. Uh, so it's embarrassing. Then the convenience, I've got a ton of kids already in. There's no room in a van to drive three hours back to College Station with three gigantic stuffed animals. It has cost me much, all right? But I'm convinced this was a meaningful moment. It's a meaningful gift. They're so excited. They're sleeping with the, with the dog on night one that's bigger than them with like the leg wrapped over it. It's all very cute. Good for the Instagram. Uh, can I tell you, it was two days, two days, until those dogs were in the corner. They'd been relegated to the corner of the room with like dirty laundry on top, a total afterthought. Now, if you ask them like, hey, what's this? You came over, what's this dog all about? They would light up and they would tell you, oh, my dad got that for you because it for me because he loves me and it kind of cost him a lot. Um, but yeah, they'll tell you the story. They'll explain the meaning. But largely the dogs had been relegated, have been relegated to the corner of the room. I need you to know I come with concern because I know my own story and it probably lines up with many of yours. For many of us, the same thing has happened with the cross, with the cross of Christ, with like the centerpiece, the primary emblem, the primary symbol of our faith, the theological crux of everything we believe most, the practical help for every scenario, situation, spiritual attack, difficulty is there at the cross. And a life freshly saved has the cross in the center of the living room. In a life trying to do the Christian stuff out of one's own efforts and cultural norms tends to relegate the cross to the corner where it gathers dust. And if asked about it, we'll be like, oh yeah, that's the cross and we'll dust it off and say, yeah, this is what it means. And but in terms of being the day-to-day -day centerpiece of the Christian life, we need reminders how faithful the musicians in this place are to prayerfully put together a, play a playlist that already starts centering us around the cross, the wonder-working power of the blood of Christ, right? How wonderful that God already seems to be doing this before the tall guy even came out here. I want the cross before you on this Father's Day. I want the sacrificial love of the, of the Father in front of you. I want you to have a fresh encounter with the cross of Jesus. Super simple. Super simple. That is what I believe God wants to do in these next few moments. 
uh, to get the cross back to the center of the room and the center of your life, uh, that would change everything. And my friends, a lot hangs in the balance. A lot hangs in the balance if the cross is not at the center of your room. Okay? Not to be too heavy-handed at the introduction, your eternity will be determined by what you see or don't see when you look at the cross. Your eternity and, and, and the quality of your life, the vibrancy of your life, the depth of your hope, the durability of your joy, the fruitfulness of your life lived on purpose on mission for Jesus will largely be impacted and determined by whether or not the cross of Christ is in the center of your room or relegated to the corner. Guys, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Um, but the parts of the path I want you to have an eye for as we read the passage and specifically the verse that changed my life when I was a teenager are the following concepts. Love, sacrifice, and friendship. Love, sacrifice, and friendship. Those are the things. Try to call them out before I do as we read. And as we go into these themes, I think it's gonna be wildly helpful. Uh, and I think that God is gonna encourage us He's going to meet us where we are. Uh, those three things the cross puts forward are going to have something to say to us today. Uh, before I dive into the scripture, did anybody here grow up in a, a church where if the preacher says something helpful, you let them know? Anybody? Like, okay, thank you. There you all are. Okay. I just want to fully recognize and empower you. You have full permission. Okay. Consider it hospitality as someone who has, uh, you know, found a home in such places. Uh, if I say anything good, you can let me know. You just have permission. Even if you're online, I will hear you maybe. So uh, let's go ahead and do this, guys. I have nothing, last disclaimer before we get in, uh, I have nothing novel or new for most of you today. I don't. I'm not going to put my seminary degree to work much. I'm not going to put that doctorate that I grinded for uh, to work too much. Uh, because what I'm learning the older I get is that most of us, most of the time, don't need deeper truths to believe. We need to believe simple truths more deeply. All right? And so with that attitude, we go to the cross of Christ. Go to John 15 with me. Starting in verse 9, we're going to get to verse 13. And as I read, I'm going to pause whenever I feel like I need to say stop just to elaborate a bit on the beauty of this passage. But this is God's word for us today. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Stop. I told you we wouldn't get far. Abide is used 10 times in this passage from the mouth of Jesus. Those are red letters. 10 times in this passage, this word abide, a word you don't use. And so don't breeze through that as you read, abide, to remain, remain in my love, stay planted in my love, stay in the proximity, the intimacy of my love, abide, remain. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Stop. Pause. Every heart in the room needs to hear this right off the bat. No matter what difficulty you are going through, whatever conviction God is bringing upon you to bring change into your life that will require change of you, no matter what your specific situation, hear me, your joy is always God's end game. 
He's always going after your joy. He's always trying to preserve and maximize your joy, even when he's taking things away. Even when he's walking with you through the hardship instead of removing the hardship. He is playing the long game to maximize your joy and his glory. He is a master. He is masterful at doing those two things at the same time. So even as we go deeper into understanding the cross, sacrificial love, all these things, and calling you to love like him, it's all for your joy. It's a preview. Your joy, that your joy might be full. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. However he has loved us, church, we are called to love in the same way, which is inspiring and terrifying as we go further into this text. Because verse 13, and here it comes, the one that saved my life, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. My friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And everybody said together, amen. amen. Alrighty. First of all, context is key. Bringing this passage to life, context is key. Y'all, we are in the final hours of the life of Christ. Connect with what is happening here. We have just been in uh, a room where Jesus has gathered everyone for the Last Supper. He's, been, he's washed their feet as an act of just bizarre, unexpected love and service to the learners of the rabbi, of the teacher. He has just foretold his death for like the 10th or 12th time, trying to help them wrap their minds around it. He has broken bread and he has shared a cup of wine to try to symbolize what's about to happen in a few hours time. The truth of it all, the meaning of it all is swirling like the wine in that glass and they're doing their best to understand what's happening. But that's what's just happened. They've now left that space. Where are they going? They're going to the garden of Gethsemane. As all this is being said, they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, leaving the place where all that symbolism of death and sacrificial love was, walking to the place where he will eventually be arrested in a couple hours, but first he will pray, he will agonize at the thought of bearing your sin and mine on the cross that is just a few hours away. That's the context. The cross is literally coming up over the horizon. They are in the middle of these just monstrous moments in redemptive history. That is the context these things are spoken into, and that changes everything. Sometimes the context is more important than the content of what you're reading. At the very least, it shines a light on it and magnifies it and amplifies it, right? That's what happens here. Because greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends is something in a, in a, a vacuum you could ponder that and it could change your life. That's largely what happened to me. But you put it in its context? Oh, it's exploding with meaning. It's exploding with all kinds of meaning along the way. When we read that text, did you even see the cross at first, if you're honest? I gave you this introduction, this pretty heavy introduction. Hey, we need to get the cross back at the center. Then I read you these verses, these four or five verses, and it's possible you were like, where's the cross in there? That appears to be more of a command. It appears to be more, I'm supposed to love other people the way Jesus has loved me. 
But no, no, there's, there's something to wrestle with here. There's, there's the cross. It's, it's hiding in plain view in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. Parentheses, that's what I'm about to do for you. 2,000 years later, <laughs> to us, to me, to you, that's what I've done for you. That's what I've done for you. And only then, and that's what I'm calling you to do for other people. My friends, big point number one, if you're doing the reading guide online or here on campus, big point number one, the cross is proof of his love for me. It's proof of his love for me. That's what hit me in 1998. I was a sophomore in high school. I had been invited to go to a youth event. I didn't really know what I was going to. I was one of those people who's honestly like many of you. I grew up in and around church. I grew up in the literal shadow of the cross. But like I already said, <laughs> you, uh, it's very possible to grow up in the shadow of the cross and not know the one who hangs on it. And so in that context of that youth event, big party, music, some worship, games, all that stuff, at night we'd go to host homes and we'd stay the night uh, with people your age and gender. So I was with the sophomore guys and like basically the formal, I don't know, Jesus Bible time was us sitting on a shag carpet uh, <laughs> late at night, everyone's got their Bibles open and it's just the, the small group leader is saying, let's just go around and you just share what your favorite Bible verse is. And it's basically what Pastor Greg asked me to do. Like, what's your life verse? Share it. A couple thousand more people hearing it this, this time, a couple decades later. But it's basically the same exercise. The only problem with me back in 1998 as all of the people in my circle were like, oh, I can't wait. I got mine. I was like, yeah, I don't have one of those, like that favorite verse thing you're talking about. So I'm like, you guys talk, you guys talk. And I'm like, I'm going to find a favorite real quick rather than admit I don't have one. And so I'm just like, Lord, help me out. We haven't talked a whole lot, but please. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. Just falls open. And I am reading it over and over again as my peers took turns sharing their verses. And here's the profound thing that happened for me. I had a baseline understanding of the gospel. I knew very ambiguously the John 3.16 gospel. Not even the whole thing, just the first couple words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I had a loose understanding of what that meant. A loose understanding. But what fell, what fell into place as those words are jumping off the page into my heart is this realization that yes, he died for the world and the sacrifice of the perfect lamb of God was enough, was more than sufficient to cover and forgive the sins of all who would repent and put their faith in him, the world. But something about that word friends, I knew that this was talking about what Jesus had done. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life, cross, for his friends. And I just felt the Holy Spirit like, yeah, that's you. Wait, that's me? Hold on, the cross was for me. Because I, I knew the, the world thing, the cross was, and I was just stunned. I was absolutely stunned at the realization, like my, my theology was still whacked. I did not understand everything, but the cross was coming into view and it was changing my heart on the spot. The understanding, this simple thought, 
for my teenage brain, no seminary, no Bible study, nothing. This was the thought that the Holy Spirit made possible. Somehow I just came into the certainty that it was Brian Robert McCormick's face in some way that was on his mind as he carried that rugged cross atop Calvary. Have you had that realization yet? Have you, have you realized that it was for you? Have, have you realized that it, that it was for you? It wasn't for the world and that you're kind of like technically drafted in. Like, Christian, your, your face was on his mind. Stop doing the math. You're like, oh, I don't know. How long did it take to climb the, the hill? And how many minutes was that? And there's been billions of people. How did he have time to stop that? Stop that. Your face was on his mind as the hammer fell, as the nail went through, as all those things took place, that changed my everything. I did not have much, but I had proof of his love for me. I knew there would be doubts. I knew there were things I was confused about, but I knew it would be irrational to ever doubt that I was loved. And how sturdy is the ground someone is standing on if that's the only thing they know? The cross is proof that I'm loved by the Father because he was willing to lay down the Son. The cross is proof that I'm loved by the Son because he willingly, even joyfully, according to Hebrews, lay down his life for his friends, for me. And it's in the years that followed that I got to connect some of the theological dots, right? Where it's like, oh, the cross is not just like how, <laughs> an example of how God loves his friends. It's the means by which Christ makes his friends. It's the means by which he turns enemies of God, enemies of the cross, enemies of the gospel into friends. When the, when the truth of the cross that this Jesus lived the perfect life I could not live gave me credit for it. Died the death I deserve in my place for my sin because he loves me and then gave me the credit for it. Like that, that Jesus, when that truth, when that gospel comes to bear on a hard heart, new life pops up. And an enemy, one who used to think they were the king, living as if they were on the throne, who would do damage and hurt and violence to the hearts of other people and to the hearts of God with their thoughts, their actions, and their words, that person becomes a new creation, becomes a friend of God. And that person gets to look at the cross for the rest of their life and say, I can doubt plenty, but I cannot doubt that I'm loved. And my friends, that's a lot. That is, there was more than enough for what most of you are facing. He loves you. You're like, when are you gonna get to the deep stuff? What are you, ooh, careful, careful. When are you gonna get to the deep stuff? When are you gonna quote the Greek more? I'm like, some of you just need like, you need like, like church Sunday school lyrics in your head more often. Like Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Okay, there is a place for theology. I've dedicated years of my life to that. Are you too mature to come back to the cross and just celebrate the simplicity that he loves you? Come on now, come on. The cross is proof of his love for me. Charles Spurgeon once wrote when he was writing a letter about the season of depression he was going through, he said, I find no better cure for depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart to seek to, re to realize afresh 
the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus, his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. Charles Spurgeon, to realize afresh. That's my prayer for you, my prayer for you today, Christian. There is never a bad time as a Christian to realize afresh the love of Christ revealed at the cross. Put it back in the center of the room. Big point number two, the cross is not just the proof of his love for me. It is also the measure of his love for me. No greater love. There's no greater love. Apparently there's different kinds of love. And there's also like imposter loves and fake loves and lesser loves, but there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. Why do stories of sacrificial love resonate so deeply in us? Christian or not? Why does, why does every medium use stories of sacrificial love? The best songs ever written, the, the best films ever shot, the best books ever penned, they all end up pointing to sacrificial love. I will tell you this, there's no evolutionary reason why we would resonate with sacrificial love. Because according to those who ascribe to such things, like survival of the fittest, we are wired apparently with thinking that would say, no matter what, survive. No matter what, survive. No matter what, survive. No matter what, just look out for yourself and survive. But then when we see or hear stories of sacrificial love, something in us just like leans in. The human ear is wired to like, pick up on frequencies that are speaking about sacrificial love. The human eye naturally fixates on scenes of sacrificial love. And it can prove it with things that start silly. If I just tell you the following random fact, the average dolphin sleeps eight hours a day, unless a mother dolphin has just given birth. Then she doesn't sleep for a month protecting her child. Some of the parents in the room are like, and? <laughs> what you got, right? It's Father's Day. How about the, the fathers of emperor penguins, right? They stand for two months with a fertilized egg balanced between their feet. No food, no movement, freezing temperatures, sweeping winds and storms coming through. But they do that so that life can come forth where there was no life before. Random animal facts. But do you feel that? There's something that makes you go, huh? Why is that compelling? Why is that inspiring? And then of course, I wanna be careful with this. I wanna be very careful with this. You consider stories of brothers and sisters who have served in the military and made the ultimate sacrifice for us. Some of you are grieving people who did that today on this Father's Day. And to you I say, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you. But stories that some of you are thinking of, stories like that of Navy SEAL Michael Mansour in Iraq, sniper overwatch position, looking out for his brothers. Insurgent sneaks in, throws a grenade into their area, bounces off of Michael's chest, falls to the ground. He's the one closest to the door, to the exit. He's the one who could get out unharmed. Instead, doesn't hesitate, throws himself on the grenade. He dies 30 minutes later while his three brothers go home. Again, 
I will not exploit the story of a real man and his actual sacrifice. I celebrate the beauty of the story just in and of itself. But I'm sorry, I cannot fail to point to the fact that that was the act that reflected a greater sacrificial love. And I'm telling you, friends, stories like that and the thing that happens in you, that is the work, the pre-work of your creator saying, that's what it's all about. That's the glimpse sacrificial love, that's the measure, sacrifice, sacrifice, great love involves sacrifice and the greatest love required, the greatest sacrifice. There is no greater love than this to lay down one's life for his friends. My friends, oh gosh. You are loved with the greatest love in the universe. That's what the sacrificial love in Jesus on the cross declares. As a result, may you stand in humbled awe of God's grace and may you recognize the value he ascribes to you as he offers it to you. You clearly mean much more to him than the enemy would want you to think. Last, and I gotta go quick. I gotta go quick. The cross is proof of his love for me. It's the measure of his love for me. And lastly, number three, the cross is the model of my life for others. And thank you, Navy Seal Mansoor, for the glimpse of what that looks like. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So this passage in this verse that changed my life and might be changing yours afresh today is a de declaration of the supremacy of God's love for you revealed on the cross. It's a reminder of the measure, there is no greater love, but it also is not just a declaration. It's not just a fact. It's also a command. It's also a command. How do I know that? Because John 15, 13 itself is not a command. Every Bible verse is either a command, a fact, or a promise. Write that down if you want to study effectively. Some of you might technically say, uh, excuse me, Brian, that is not a command. It is not an imperative. It is a fact. Um, hold on. Put it back in context. The whole passage, the whole point, Jesus is about to go to the cross, his final charge to the ones who are gonna take the mission forward. You are all going to die for your faith in me. Take up your cross and follow. Take up your cross and follow. That's what he's saying to those 12. And a life of sacrifice is what he has for us. It's a command. Verse 12, love one another as I have loved you. Verse 14, you're my friends if you do what I've commanded you to, like love one another as I have loved you. Just for good measure, verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. It's a command. The cross is a command. It's our model of love for the world, for those we call friend, for those God calls friend, whether we call them friend or not. The cross is our model. And my friends, this command is echoed by the entire New Testament. Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. First John 3, 16, by this we know that love, he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, specifically the law he just spoke to us and this one might mess with you. This one might mess with you. Because honest question, oh, how intimidating is it to love the way Jesus loved us? That sounds painful. 
That sounds hard, y'all. Can we just be honest? That sounds costly and painful. Even if we have a motivation and we have a model, like, how do we do this? Like, what is maybe the nudge? What is the nudge? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, I think sums this up really well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Anybody confused? The joy. Did he say the joy? Did the author of Hebrews really just say the joy? It was the joy set before Jesus that got him up Calvary that day. That caused him to not call down legions of angels to wipe out the people crucifying him. It was the joy? What, what joy? What joy? And my friends, for Christ, the joy was twofold. One, it was the joy of obedience. Obeying the Father, making good on the plan he had been a part of crafting since eternity past bringing glory to the Father, mastermind, fulfilled prophecies and kept promises and everything that's happening in that moment, the joy of bringing the Father glory. And then the second, what was the other joy? You. Forgiveness for you, healing for you, eternity with you, intimacy and nearness with you that was so joyful, so real, so paradigm shifting, and he could see through the cross to that reality, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And my friends, listen to me, because this might be the missing piece. The life of sacrifice you've been called to, the life, huh, the life of sacrifice many of you have been avoiding, is one of the foremost sources of enduring joy available to you on this side of eternity. You have left that joy on the table by avoiding sacrificial love. It's time for you to go back and get your joy. Go back and get your joy. You have a model. You don't just have, ooh, you don't just have a model. You don't just have the motivation of Christ's love for you. There is joy that will be highlighted by the Holy Spirit to you as you start living a lovingly sacrificial life. Take heart, that will come to pass. Quick story and I'll close with this. Um, we mentioned I'm from Canada and uh, I think there's one can Canadian there whooping. I didn't expect that at all. All right, cool. Uh, I moved here when I was in kindergarten, came to the great nation of Texas, as I said, and then just kind of became an American. Didn't really think twice about it. Citizenship was kind of not on my mind. Uh, forgot about Canada, didn't really claim Canada, didn't have a heart connection to Canada. And it was just, I was enjoying the benefits of my environment and functioned like an American. And then as I got older and got to like voting age and into college and all that kind of stuff, I was like, yeah, I should make this official. I want to participate. I want to vote, all that kind of stuff. It was very practical. So I started going through the process and it's paperwork and it's taking the right kind of pictures, like a passport picture. It's taking a very suspect test, just so you know. If, if you're in charge of the tech, I apologize if I'm making fun of your test, if you like work for the government, but you need to make that thing a little tougher, okay? It's like, is this a flag? Yes, cool. You're an American now. Like, um, <laughs> 
exaggerate a little bit, but there was nothing in and of the process to make me really think much of what I was actually uh, participating in until I went to the ceremony where we were sworn in. And I was in an arena in North Houston with a couple thousand, a cloud of witnesses. And before and after that ceremony, there are people of every imaginable ethnicity, every imaginable creed and color, all together weeping in circles because it was not lost on them the benefits of what they'd been given. And it was not lost on them the sacrifice of somebody or some collection of somebodies that made those benefits possible. I had spent 15, 20 years forgetting the sacrifice that Eileen and Roger McCormick made when they left everything in Montreal and moved the three of us to Texas so we could have a better life. I would not be standing on this stage, that's for sure, or any stage. Would I know the Lord? I don't know. I don't know. But is there a chance that the same way I needed to be surrounded by other people who were properly rejoicing in and responding to what I'd been given through sacrifice? Hmm, I wonder if today's a day in this cloud of witnesses where you need some remembrance and some response and some rejoicing as you consider the incredible love of Jesus afresh. What joy there might be for you. What joy there surely is for you if you would give yourself to such remembrance. Lord Jesus, Gospel of John says that the purpose of the gospel (laughs) is that you may believe and have life in his name. And so God, I refuse to let a day like today go by where the cross has been put in the center, where the gospel, even its simplicity, forgiveness of sin and adoption into family and a new start and a new heart has been made available and visible. May people in this room who have never truly known the one hanging on the cross, even if they grew up in the shadow of the cross, say, here I am. And I see you for who you are and I see the cross for what it is. I give you my life, you get my everything. And may they experience more change and joy than they think possible. God, for everyone else in the room, may today be a day of remembrance of what the cross is. May it be a day of repentance if we'd allow the cross to get dusty. May we come back to the cross and be reminded of those two things that Tim Keller always said before he recently passed away. (laughs) At the cross, there are two things I cannot deny. One, I am more sinful than I ever feared. Two, I am more loved than I ever could have hoped. God, may Houston's first and this greater community, all the campuses be known for as a place where the cross is in the center of the room of their lives. And may they love sacrificially as a result. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody sit together. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations, at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.